The views expressed on this broadcast of the Take 12 Recovery Radio Show do not necessarily reflect those of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting or its affiliates. KHLT and Take12Radio.com are not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. The one down on the floor Telling these people that I ain't there no more Welcome to Walking Through the Big Book with Chris Schroeder and Monty Meyer. Now, here's those two guys who investigate prior to contempt, Chris and the Monty Man. Well, welcome. Welcome, 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 and I hope we investigate prior to contempt. It would be a switch, wouldn't it? Yes, indeedy. Welcome to Walking Through the Big Book. I am your co-host, the Monty Man, sitting here in this wonderful studio in beautiful downtown Albany, Oregon. And, of course, Chris Schroeder is on the line from the East Coast. Chris, welcome to show number two. Monty, how are you doing today? I, I'm, doing, I'm doing awesome. The weather's great. The, the birds are, are chirping on key. The wind's blowing in the direction it's supposed to, and I don't have to try to correct the universe like I did yesterday. That's good news. So, for those of you folks who who have didn't listen to the first show last Sunday, what we're doing is we're going through the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous page by page, uh, uh, really sentence by sentence, word by word. And uh, Chris is is taking us through that. It's a fantastic journey. Uh, Just so you know, you can access. The uh, the first show anytime you want to just click on the post button p o s t s button uh, on the webcast box there uh, if you're at take12radio.com and you've clicked on uh, Sunday's uh, walking through the big book link and it'll bring up the archives of the shows and you can do that uh, anytime listen to the show over and over again and that kind of thing so there that is there so Chris what are we doing today well you know you know Monty. Uh it's it's really no great secret that addictive illness, alcoholism, uh, drug dependence, is quite possibly, uh, quite probably, the number one health threat in the country today. Now, the book Alcoholics Anonymous, since it's been uh, since it was printed in 1939, has proven to be about the most successful tool available to fight addictive illness. There's been many many 12-step groups that have uh, sprung up using the concepts that were first laid out in the, in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. So really, I think that an exploration of this book is, uh, is, a, is a very, very valid, uh, valid venture. And I'm very, very excited to be doing it, uh, doing it with you. You also know a whole lot about this book. So um, last week, we got through um, basically the forward to the first edition, we're on the forward to the second edition this week. Uh, what, what were your impressions of, uh, of last week's show, Monty? I really, I, I really had a great time. I sat down with uh, one of my sponsees and a couple other people, and we listened to it. And you know, when you when you record a show, and when you listen to a show, it's two different things. And I I just really enjoyed it. I. You know, I'm partial to it anyway. Um, but the comments I got from the few that were that were here listening to it were, "Wow, I didn't know that." And I've been reading the big book for a very long time. Here's here's one of the the things that I heard that I really thought was a, was a hoot. Um, my sponsee said, "I've never read or heard the preface and the forward like I did today." Um, he said that you made it come alive for him. And I think that is what's so so awesome about the way you present the big book to us. And I think that was probably the the one statement that was made to me that really got me excited. Because if this thing can't come alive for us, then it's just head knowledge. 
and you and you and I both know that that head knowledge is not going to get it. If you could uh, if you could overcome uh, addictive illness with an education in it, yeah, uh, then then you would go to class to to learn how to overcome it, and you would be fine. And the fact of the matter is, is uh, is uh, addiction recovery, alcoholism recovery, is fraught with with relapse, and th- there's a reason for that. And you know, the information in this book, we're going to take weeks and weeks and weeks to get through all of this information. But they had it right. The amazing thing is, they had it nailed. Uh, no matter who, uh, no matter who you are, if you're le- a legitimate. Uh, treatment provider, if you're an ex- if someone who has experience in recovery, you are going to know that the concepts uh, that they assembled back in, uh, back in the late 30s are still valid today, and they are what needs to be experienced for uh, permanent, uh, long-lasting recovery from uh, alcoholism or, or any addictive illness, yeah. really. It's more of a spiritual problem than it is a substance problem. And they knew that back then, and they knew what you needed to do to get your spirit right so that you could remain in recovery. See, you know, quitting drinking is not really the answer to alcoholism. Quitting drugs is not really the answer to drug addiction. There's a deeper underlying problem within the person's spirit that needs to be addressed. And there has you know, to, to the best of my knowledge, there has not been a text written on uh, substance abuse recovery that equals this this text in validity and in, uh, in, 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 in basically a pathway to experience recovery yourself. Mm-hmm. I, I would definitely concur with that. And, you know, this is one reason why I appreciate the, the uh, Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous so much and, and the literature is because we're looking at this from uh, from the point of view of uh, alcoholism and so forth being merely the symptom, uh, whereas some other programs that are out there look as look at the alcohol or the narcotics or the food or whatever as the actual problem. And uh, I think I had myself I had to break free of that and change my thinking in that area along with other areas of my life as well. You know, when you're looking at let's with alcoholism for a minute because that's really what this book is about right however this is valid for almost any form of addiction or even obsessive compulsive disorder but when you're looking at when you're looking at alcoholism it's an unorthodox illness it, it affects you physically it affects you mentally it affects you certainly spiritually and the recovery process for alcoholism is a very unorthodox recovery process. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have an illness, when you when you have a disease or an illness, you know, you'll go to the doctor, and whether it be chemo or antibiotics, I mean, there's usually a, a well laid out uh, plan that doctors can uh, doctors can offer you at, for for recovery. Whether it's inpatient, outpatient, you know, take medication, uh, do therapy. When you look at uh, when you look at alcoholism, it's it's a chronic illness. It's going to be with you the rest of your life, and you need to remain focused on the the the, the tools that they give you, uh, especially in this book. You need to be, remain focused on the fact that you have alcoholism, and there's a certain way you need to live that will be conducive. To recovery, that's really unorthodox. I mean, you know, you, you're not going to you're not going to find that in other illnesses. So there's a lot of misunderstandings and and uh, uh, you know a, a lot of misunderstandings about alcoholism. Many people misunderstand it. People that treat you for it uh, sometimes have have great misunderstanding about the recovery process. They they really think that. Uh, all you need to do is watch out for your triggers, or you know, all you need to do is go to outpatient therapy for uh, a year. You know that that you know that is really misunderstanding the nature of the illness and what needs to be uh, the participation that needs to be uh, engaged in uh, to remain in a recovered state. Yeah, boy, isn't isn't that the truth? We we've got to go beyond. We've just got to go beyond the substance. Uh, it, otherwise, we're just spinning our wheels, just spinning our wheels. Because I, I did that. I did that. I, you know, I, I quit drinking, you know, and, and 
it never did last because I never dealt with anything else. You know, the, the, the uh, let's, let's call it the real alcoholic, because that, that's what they call it in this book. That's right. Uh, the real alcoholic, as opposed to, you know, someone who has a drinking problem, someone who's dependent on alcohol, which is the real alcoholic. You know, when, when, you, when you stop drinking, that's, that's when a lot of the spiritual and emotional and mental problems uh, uh, start. So it, it's not a matter of separating from the alcohol. That's the very beginning, and that's necessary. But mere separation from alcohol, what 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 will happen to the real alcoholic is one of three things: they'll they'll uh, they'll commit suicide, uh, they'll go insane and be locked up, or they'll drink again if they don't engage in a recovery process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are there are exceptions to that rule. There are exceptions to people who just just don't drink. And you know, with a, with a, uh, uh, an amazing amount of willpower, just decide not to drink. But when you look at the quality of their life, the quality of their emotional, mental, and spiritual life, you see that they really are dying an alcoholic death because there's no quality to their life. They 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 are they're they're at best very cranky, at, at worst uh, 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 tyrannical in their lives. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so understanding the understanding what's in this book is 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 of the highest importance. You know when you look at uh, when you look at treatment in, in America today, it started with the the, the Minnesota twelve step abstinence based model, and what what it really was was uh, what treatment really was in the beginning was it was a bunch of people in AA who got together and said, you know, we really, need, uh, we really need an acute care facility for some of these AAs. We need to lock them up, and we need to pound down these concepts of, uh, of, uh, of recovery. We need to just, just inundate them with, the, with these concepts of recovery because they're, they're not to be trusted. They're, they're not capable of, of understanding this uh, in, 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 you know, just getting involved in the fellowship. So all of a sudden, these, these treatment uh, methodologies started. Now, we've learned a whole lot over the years. However, legitimate recovery treatment centers have to apply the 12-step model, or else they are really doing a disservice to whoever their clients are. I am not saying that the 12-step is the only way, but what I am saying is it's been, uh, it's been the most successful way for the most amount of people. So to overlook it is pretty irresponsible uh, for a treatment provider because you cannot, you cannot uh, uh, ignore the success of the 12-step model. So it's legitimized in uh, in the medical community. It's been legitimized with the religious community. Uh, it, it is because of the success. You just can't turn your head at four million sober alcoholics in North America due to the the twelve step fellowships. Right. So right. anyway, uh, enough of all that. How about if we move into the forward to the second edition? Let's do it. Okay. This is from the fourth edition, and this starts on uh, Roman numeral 15 uh, in the fourth edition. Forward to the second edition. Figures given in this forward describe the fellowship as it was in 1955. It had been about 16 years since the first printing of the first edition. It was time for another printing. They were really moving into um, selling a lot of these books, and they needed to update some things. They needed to update the stories. They needed to they needed to change um, uh, change the, the forward, and they, they just uh, they had to do some things. So since the original forward to this book was written in 1939, a wholesale miracle has taken place. Our earliest printing voiced the hope that every alcoholic who journeys will find the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous at his destination. Already, continues the early text, twos and threes and fives of us have sprung up in other communities. Sixteen years have elapsed between our first printing of this book and the presentation in 1955 of our second edition. In that brief space, Alcoholics Anonymous has mushroomed into nearly 6,000 groups whose membership is far above 150,000 recovered alcoholics. Groups are to be found in each of the United States and all of the provinces of Canada. AA has flourishing communities in the British Isles, Scandinavian countries, 
South Africa, South America, Mexico, Alaska, Australia, and Hawaii. All told, promising beginnings have been made in some 50 foreign countries and U.S. possessions. Some are just now taking shape in Asia. Many of our friends encourage us by saying that this is but a beginning, only the augury of a much larger future ahead. They had great growth, especially after a number of, uh, of uh, press articles came out. You know, there, there, there was a number, the Jack Alexander article, mm-hmm. there was a number of articles uh, in major publications uh, that said alcoholics, you know, you know, there's now a hope for alcoholism. And in those periods of time, Monty, what, what, would, what would traditionally happen is you would have a group somewhere with maybe five members. Uh, the Saturday Evening Post article would come out, and all of a sudden you'd go from five to 250 members in the, in the course of a couple of weeks. And back in, back in that period of time, they very, very quickly had to hone their, their 12-step skills. How do you offer a recovery program to so many people coming in so quickly? And I think, I think overall, I'm sure they made a lot of mistakes, but I think overall they did a pretty good job. I mean, they treated it as triage, and they took their 12-step work back in those days extremely seriously. Unfortunately, today, you know, I, I've heard uh, I've heard many people say uh, that there are phone lines, uh, there are twelve-step phone lines where where uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or, or or intergroup or any of those those uh, uh, functions will get a phone call uh, with somebody asking for help, and they'll have a really hard time tracking somebody down who's willing to go on that twelve-step call. That has really changed over the years. In the early days of Alcoholics Anonymous, so many people were available for one-on-one work. They would go get them. They would put them in the hospital. They would, they would stay with them through the treatment. They would get them, uh, get them to meetings. They would get people to work them through the steps. It was very, very intensive in the beginning. And that, that I believe, led to um, uh, the amazing growth that they had in the first 15 uh, or 20 years of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I think that's a lesson for us, too. I, th- I, think, uh, I think that if you are uh, a, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and you, uh, you aren't available or doing these 12-step calls, uh, that that's something that you probably should look at. Do, do you think that possibly, you know when people get an idea and it works really well and they're all enthused about it and they bring other people that are enthused about it and they get going and they're doing all sorts of stuff and then pretty soon they're doing way more than what they're even capable of doing and so it just kind of falls off to the wayside. Is that one of the contributing factors uh, for members not to go out and do this stuff like they used to? I think for I think there's a, a, a couple of uh, factors that that uh, I believe uh, have led to uh, the de- decrease in uh, in twelve step calls. You know, one of them is the advent of the detoxes, the rehabs, and your ability to go into an ER and uh, and get detoxed. I think I think back in the day when this book was written, there was fewer it was f- fewer and and further between the places where you could go to get uh, get some kind of help. I think that that's true, uh, and I think along the way, uh, certain people have gotten kind of lazy. They, they've they've allowed the, the professionals uh, to to handle uh, all of the the twelve the twelve step work, and it's it's not become a vital function of um, of a twelve step group anymore the way it was in the beginning. Um, and you know, again, uh, again, I think that is one of the factors that leads to. Uh, the the higher amount of uh, of of relapses uh, within twelve step groups today because uh, relapse is directly proportional to how busy you are about the business of recovery and the work involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're spending two or three hours a day uh, a week uh, on recovery activities, your chances of uh, of staying sober are, are way less than somebody that's spending fifteen or twenty hours a week on uh, on uh, the same type of related activities it's directly proportional so uh, uh, again you know i, I think uh, i think that uh, it's something for for current 12-step um, fellowship members to look at you know are, are you are you busy are you available um are you reaching out uh, yeah. are you looking 
for for places where you can be helpful, or are you just showing up at meetings, you know, uh, drinking coffee and and sharing about your day? And, and, and I have to uh, one more thing I wanted to say. It's almost uh, spoken of in a comical sense or sarcastically. Sometimes uh, I will hear folks say, "Well, we just don't go." in the bars and drag people off bar stools anymore. We just don't do that. You know, and, and I've, I've heard that kind of cynicism about that. We just don't take people to hospitals and stay with them anymore. You know, they can come here if they really want it. You know, that, that's, a, that's a cop-out, and that's, that's somebody justifying uh, their, their laziness. That's right. I don't think anybody would say, you know, go to a bar stool and drag people off of the bar stools. However, you know, there are sick and suffering individuals uh, all over the place who have not been offered an adequate presentation of the recovery, uh, of the recovery process. Uh, you know, and another thing that happens a lot, Monty, is uh, the, uh, uh, what, what they do is they say it's attraction, not promotion. Right. That's, that's Alcoholics Anonymous's uh, uh, media uh, uh, position. That's their public relations position. That has nothing to do with your 12-step attitude and actions. Mm-hmm. That's a misunderstanding. That That's taking a public relations statement and making it about you because it's much more convenient not to have to be busy. Wow, that's a good point. Very good point. Y- you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. The spark that was the flare in, in, into the first AA group was struck in Akron, Ohio, in June 35 during a talk between a New York stockbroker, shyster speculator, and an Akron physician, an act, a failing Akron proctologist. Six months earlier, the broker had been relieved of his drink obsession by a sudden spiritual experience following a meeting with an alcoholic friend who had been in contact with the Oxford groups of that day. You know, that, of course, was, uh, was Ebby Thatcher. Mm-hmm. And Ebby, uh, you know, uh, Dick B., who's, who's uh, you know, on your show all the time, I'm not going to get uh, into, deeply into the Oxford group because there's nobody on this planet that does it better than Dick B. Uh, he's, he's done extensive research on the Oxford group and what exactly was going on back then. Uh, but basically, I will say this, until this book was written, until the group, uh, a group started in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, the official name of the fellowship really wasn't Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. They were a, loose, uh, a loosely associated group, um, a splinter group uh, of, of the Oxford group, like in Akron and in New York. They were basically the drunk squad of, of uh, the Akron group. But upon publication of this book, it made it very, very... Uh, uh, it, it was the right thing to do to actually formulate uh, the fellowship and the structure of the fellowship into Alcoholics Anonymous. I see. But, okay. Uh, but the Oxford Group, as well as the Emanuel Movement and the Jacoby Club and the Washingtonians, and there were many other groups uh, prior to Alcoholics Anonymous that had a lot of the qualities of Alcoholics Anonymous, a lot of the fellowship, a lot of the spiritual uh, revitalization processes that were able to get drunk sober. There were many, many alcoholics who got sober in many, many different groups. The problem with a lot of those groups was, let's say you got sober in the uh, Oxford group. Mm -hmm. You could probably stay sober as long as you were really involved in the Oxford group. Right. The minute you decided to go back to, to whatever else you were doing before you joined the Oxford group, you would get drunk. You know, Bill Wilson and, uh, and the early AAs realized that and put into, put into practice a lifetime spiritual process so that that wouldn't happen. You know, the Washingtonians is a great example. They went from, from six members in Baltimore, Maryland, to an estimated two to 300,000 in, in the course of like three or four years. And then back down to zero because uh, their particular fellowship exploded due to uh, outside issues uh, uh, coming into play. Mm-hmm. So as long as you were really involved in the Washingtonians, you were able to stay sober. But without a Washingtonian group, uh, you were toast. Yeah. The thing about uh, the thing about the twelve-step recovery process is it really way, way, it really lays out a way of living 
that's going to work for you. And it's not necessarily a meeting-dependent program. If, if you look in this book, it certainly has some things to say about meetings. It certainly has some things to say about uh, gathering together as alcoholics to stay sober. But this book does not point to a meeting-based recovery process uh, like, like is, is so popular today. It basically points to a spiritual, uh, God-centered recovery process. You know, and and this is the thing that, that is so sideways because you hear it all the time. So and so went back out, and the first thing they admitted when they came back in was, "I stopped going to meetings." I suggest that there was a lot of other things going on you stopped doing before you ever stopped going to meetings. You know what happens, Monty? Is you stop going to meetings before you stop going to meetings. Yeah. <laughs> you stop calling your sponsor. You stop working the steps. You stop helping other people. And then all of a sudden, there's not enough power to keep you in the meetings. So right. basically, you've stopped going to meetings before you stopped going to meetings. And, and the ego, the alcoholic's ego, wants to take credit for not only their success, but their failure. I shouldn't have stopped going to meetings, is what your ego wants to say. Ah. Well, that's that's not that's not even close to the real pro, the real answer. I you know I'll get a, I'll get a lot of criticism for this, but I will say this: I don't think meetings are absolutely necessary. I think the twelve step process is though. Listen, there, if you've ever been to an international uh, convention, there's groups of loners. Uh, what loners are uh, are people who are lighthouse keepers, or they're merchant marines, or, or you know they're they're uh, they're stationed on an island somewhere, and there is no meetings, there is no fellowship. They stay sober by uh, working the twelve steps and sometimes writing letters to other alcoholics, and they meet every five years at the loners table at the international conventions. Now, now they don't need meetings to stay sober, but what they're doing is they're about the business of the recovery process. They're about, they're about the business of doing everything they possibly can for their, uh, for their sobriety. Are meetings helpful? Absolutely. Are meetings essential for, for a lot of people? I, I would say probably. Uh, but the fact of the matter, uh, uh, the fact of the matter is, is this recovery process is not pointing you to to ninety and ninety. What this is pointing you to is inventory. It's pointing you to 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 uh, sharing your fifth step. It's pointing you to making direct amends. It's pointing you to prayer meditation, and then it's pointing you to help uh, to helping other people to becoming uh, so you can become a good sponsor or, or or someone who can be helpful wherever wherever it's appropriate and available. Yeah, you you bet. I I could not agree more because what happens if your meeting folds, or what happens on rare occasions? We hear about it on rare occasions where a whole meeting goes out. Are you going to go out too? Uh, you know, there's parts of the country where, you know, in uh, certain parts of China, they don't even want you to say higher power, let alone God. And there's been cases of meetings, uh, you know, dispersing. What's going to happen? Are you going to drink? You know, the, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous has been described as a self-help program. I, I think that's a misnomer. I do too. Uh, it, you know, it, it really isn't. It's, it's basically a, a God help program. Uh, it's more about establishing a connection with the divine. Uh, however, however, that's uh, available to you. How you know whatever path you you choose to go on. But uh, you know this this whole process is a recipe for that spiritual awakening, mm-hmm. and and then it gives you tools to hold on to that spiritual awakening a day at a time. You know that's that's really uh, really what what this is about. Uh, many people, many it, it, it's it's an unorthodox recovery process. <laughs> many people that read this book read it like like it's the Da Vinci Code or something. You know, page one all the way through. Okay, I got that. And you and I know it's it's a much much deeper process. Absolutely. I've probably been through this book over two hundred times. I've done a lot of workshops. I've done a lot of one on one. I've done a lot of personal study. And I've listened to a lot of workshops uh, on tape, so it's it's not an uh, I'm not overestimating by saying I've been through this book 200 times. And as we go through it, Monty, some things are going to pop up that I've never seen before. Sure, you know that are catching me uh, for the first time. Any truly any truly classic spiritual text 
will meet you where you are. So the the drying out newcomer can can read this book and try to apply some of the principles and will get a lot out of it. And the person with 40 years sober who's been through this book 600 times, it will meet them where they are too. You know, the Bible is the same way. It will meet you where you are. Any classic spiritual text will do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to be met where we are, not where we were or where we're going to be tomorrow. We need to be met exactly where we are at the moment. Absolutely. Yep. He, he had also been greatly helped by the late Dr. William D. Silkworth, a New York specialist in alcoholism, who is now accounted no less than a medical saint by AA members, and whose story of the early days of our society appears in the next pages. That, of course, is the doctor's opinion. Uh, the doctor's opinion is absolutely phenomenal. When I read it the first time, I didn't get it. I understand it today, and it's probably the most significant uh, handful of pages in this in this book. But a little bit about William D. Silkworth. Uh, he was the medical director, uh, basically, of Towns Hospital in New York City. A man named Charlie Towns uh, ran this, and it was a hospital that specialized in drug and alcohol addiction. Now, this was unusual because when you're looking at the 30s, there was not a lot of hospitals that specialized in drug and alcoholism. <laughs> they hated drug drug addiction and alcoholism back then. And one of the reasons is, is the same reason they hate it today. Uh, you know, they, they are, the nurses and the doctors are not smiling when an alcoholic comes in for detox in the emergency room. And they never have been and they never will be. Uh, we are not a pretty lot when we come in. What we do is we're, we're, we're sick to death, we're, we're vomiting, we're shaking, we're hallucinating, and we're freaked out. You know, uh, we, need, we need medical attention and, you know, we're high maintenance. And then they, they get us on some, some, uh, some Librium or some Valium or something. We calm down a little bit. We start to realize that we might have uh, overreacted going to the hospital. We start seeing what's wrong with how the hospital is being run or the detox is being run. You know, why, why are the nurses doing this? And, you know, why don't I have a phone? And, you know, uh, I need to call my bookie. And, and you know, and we start to get really aggravated and resentful. Sure. And then we storm out of the place without paying our bill. <laughs> you know, then we're back six days later. Oh, please help me. Please help me. I, I mean, you know, the, the hospitals just really don't like dealing with the chronic alcoholic or the chronic drug addict. They never did and they never will. And so, so to have a hospital in the 30s that specialized in it was, was awesome. There probably were only a handful in America at that time. And because New York City was a large city, you know, that probably was the place. But, but Charlie Towns and William Silkworth saw tens of thousands of alcoholics over the course of only a handful of years. And that's what they were treating. And I'll tell you, you'll learn some things. You'll see some patterns. You'll understand some behavioral characteristics when that many alcoholics are paraded past you. And William Silkworth really was one of the first people to really get the alcoholic. And it's, it's providential that he would bump into Bill Wilson, and they kind of had a friendship. I mean, Bill was there, I don't know, a dozen times, mm -hmm. a half a dozen times in the course of several years, you know, uh, getting rid of the delirium tremens. And, uh, you know, they, they kind of struck up a friendship. Um, so so uh, Silkworth was very, very instrumental in being part of the medical establishment that, um, that supported the Alcoholics Anonymous, or 12-step movement in the early days. From this doctor, the broker had learned the grave nature of alcoholism. The grave nature is basically what William Silkworth described as the obsession of the mind, the allergy of the body. We'll go over more of that when we move into the doctor's opinion. But this was, the, this was really uh, the, the first time that, uh, uh, that, that Bill Wilson was was able to really understand what he was suffering from. Mm -hmm. Though he could not accept all the tenets of the Oxford groups, he was convinced of the need for moral inventory, confession of personality defects, restitution to those harmed, helpfulness to others, and the necessity of belief in and dependence on God. See, from William Silkworth, Bill Wilson understood the problem. 
from the Osher group, he started to understand the solution. The solution right. And he started to believe that, yes, he needed a moral inventory. He needed to confess his personality defects. He had to make restitution to the people he had harmed. He had to be helpful to others. And the necessity of belief in and dependence upon God. He learned that from the Osher group because Ebby Thatcher was a worse drunk than him, and here he was all dressed up in a brand new suit, big <laughs> smile on his face, the lights are on in his eyes, and he's saying, Bill, I got religion and I'm sober. That's what he was, t- that's what he was telling him. Yeah. That's how Bill got 12-stepped. That's how he was brought into the Osher group. That's how he got sober. But but heavens to Betsy, let's don't ever say the word religion today. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, there's we we have to understand. We have to understand that we uh, we, we wouldn't be around if it wasn't for the men of religion and the men of science, and we're the first people to be critical of them. You know, and and it's just uh, we we need to be friendly with our friends. That's right. And you started the whole show with contempt prior to investigation. Uh, that is a very, very bad trade. Yeah, yeah. Prior to his journey to Akron, the broker had worked hard with many alcoholics on the theory that only an alcoholic could help an alcoholic. But he had succeeded only in keeping himself sober. The broker had gone to Akron on a business venture which had collapsed, leaving him greatly in fear that he might start drinking again. He suddenly realized that in order to save himself, he must carry his message to another alcoholic. That alcoholic turned out to be the Akron physician. You know, what Bill was doing wrong was he was basically lambasting the alcoholics with the solution. He wasn't letting them find the truth of the first step. Uh, he learned that basically from William Silkworth. Uh, Silkworth says, "You know, Bill, you know, you're 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 evangelizing them. What you need to do is you need to convince them that they have a problem. Then they're going to be more more apt to listen to your solution." Right, right. If I if I don't think I have a problem, I knew I knew a guy that was the all American kid. I mean, he just. Uh, won awards. He was always healthy. He was good looking. He was, you know, he was, you know, everything went his way. And talking to him one time, I asked him about his belief in God. He said, why do I need God? Well, you know, if you're not convinced um, that you need God, um, the chances of you just volunteering and signing signing yourself (laughs) up and journeying up is, is, is much slimmer than if you're convinced that you are going to die a horrible alcoholic death without a conversion experience. They right. call it a conversion experience. In the book Alcoholics Anonymous, they changed the verbiage to a spiritual awakening, mm-hmm. which is certainly fine with me. I'm not as concerned with the verbiage as I am with the experience. But if you're not convinced that you need uh, that experience, then you're not going to work hard to get it. And Williams and William Silkworth understood that, and he said, Bill, tell him about the problem. You know, don't jump right to the solution. Tell him about the problem. And that really did uh, that really did uh, help his effectiveness because the next guy he tried was uh, was Doctor Bob in Akron. And the funny thing about that is. Here is a shyster stockbroker going to a physician and explaining to the physician that he has a medical problem. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Listening to him. Now, I don't know how much you know about doctors, but sometimes it's very difficult to convince a doctor of anything. That's right. Most of the time they're trained to know everything. So for for like a stockbroker to be giving medical advice to to a surgeon, and having the surgeon actually listen is pretty incredible. That's just one of the incredible uh, uh, things that happened in early AA. You know, we're, we're, I, think, I think this whole society was seconds and inches away from not existing. But enough of the right things happened that it blossomed and became what it is today with mm-hmm. you know, conservatively three to four million members in North America. This physician had repeatedly tried spiritual means to resolve his alcoholic dilemma, but it failed. But when the broker gave him Dr. Silkworth's description of alcoholism and its hopelessness, the physician began to pursue the spiritual re- uh, remedy for his malady with a willingness he had never before uh, been able to muster. 
He sobered up never to drink again up to the moment of his death in 1950. This seemed to prove that one alcoholic could affect another as no non-alcoholic could. It also indicated that the strenuous work one alcoholic with another was vital to permanent recovery. I want to read that last sentence again. It also indicated that strenuous work one alcoholic with another was vital to permanent recovery. That should be the topic at every 12-step meeting in the country, you know, because how often does that get forgotten? Sure. Strenuous effort, not just shaking a guy's hand and getting him a cup of coffee and giving him your phone number and saying, give me a call, but strenuous effort uh, to work with other alcoholics. That's what they did back in the day. That's one of the reasons why they had 50 to 75% recovery rate, which basically we'll read about in a few minutes here. Hence, the two men set to work almost frantically upon alcoholics arriving in the ward of, Akron, of the Akron City Hospital. Their very first case, a desperate one, recovered immediately and became AA number three. He never had another drink. You know, that guy, that guy was, uh, uh, was Bill Dotson. Right. And the poor guy was an attorney. You know, uh, uh, all these people were professional people in the early days who were out of work. But he was an attorney, and he, he had violent blackouts. And what had, what had happened is he had gone into the hospital uh, uh, because of the DTs, and he had blackened the eyes of a nurse. Now, I don't know about you, but, it, you know, if I came out of a blackout and found out that I blackened the eyes of some poor nurse, I would be about as despondent and remorseful as I could possibly be. This guy yep. was literally tied to his bed in restraints when Bill and Bob showed up there. And, uh, uh, you know, he wasn't 100% ready to, to work with them, but he was open-minded, you know, because yeah. he did not want to go through that again. Sure, sure. <laughs> I uh, can imagine. This work at Akron continued through the summer of 1935. There were many failures, but there was an occasional heartening success. When the broker returned to New York in the fall of 1935, the first AA group had actually been formed, though no one realized it at the time. A second small group promptly took shape at New York to be followed in 1937 with the start of a third in Cleveland. Cleveland had actually the best recovery statistics, um, I think, of all time. They had a 93% recovery rate of people who came in, joined AA, and meant business. 93% of them stayed sober for long periods of time. That, that's amazing when you look at the statistics today. Besides these, there were scattered alcoholics who had picked up the basic ideas in Akron and New York who were trying to form groups in other cities. By late 37, the number of members having substantial sobriety time behind them was sufficient to convince the membership that a new light had entered the dark world of the alcoholic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It was now time the struggling groups thought to place their message and unique experience before the world. This determination bore fruit in the spring of 1935, 1939, by the publication of this volume. The membership had then reached about 100 men and women. You know, there's exaggerations in this book, and I, I certainly don't mind bringing up uh, points that are inaccurate. Uh, there was about anywhere between 60 and 80 uh, 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 people who were, who were sober, who were involved with Bill and Bob at this period of time. And some of them, most of them, had less than a year. Uh, but but it was happening. They could see that it was happening. And a lot of times, Bill talked about things like they had happened, but they hadn't happened yet, but they were to happen. Mm -hmm. He really was far-seeing. He really was prophetic in a lot of areas. And, you know, he's making promises in this book that really hadn't happened yet, but he knew they were going to, and they did. Uh, I will try to point those out as okay, we, good. we go through. The fledgling society, which had been nameless, now began to be called Alcoholics Anonymous from the title of its own book. The flying blind period ended, and AA entered a new phase of its pioneering time. With the appearance of the new book, a great deal began to happen. Dr. Harry Emerson Fosdick, uh, the noted clergyman, reviewed it at, with approval in the fall of 1939. Fulton Ausler, then editor of Liberty, printed a piece in his magazine called Alcoholics and God. These are all great articles, by the way. This brought a rush of 800 frantic inquiries into the little New York office, which, meanwhile, had been established. 
Each inquiry was painstakingly answered. Pamphlets and books were sent out. Businessmen traveling out of existing groups were referred to their perspe uh, prospective newcomers. New groups started up, and it was found to the astonishment of everyone that AA's message could be transmitted in the mail as well as by word of mouth. This isn't as successful as by word of mouth. Well, I think we talked about last week that the main way that Alcoholics Anonymous has grown is from members who have established themselves in groups moved to areas where there is no meetings and they establish group. Right. That's been the most successful way. But there has been times where where publications were sent to certain areas and they, they used the, the big book and some of the service literature to start groups. Do you, do you think that... Uh since the internet and and the recovery community community excuse me um being active and plugged into the internet has has there been from what you've seen uh an increase in activity within alcoholics anonymous i think the internet is is a marvelous uh device there's uh you know it, it's it's a support device I think when, when people think that uh, all they need to do is online meetings and there's no real one-on-one, face-to-face time uh, with other alcoholics, I think, I think that really diminishes the experience. That's dangerous, but, yeah. But, but, the, but the Internet has been very helpful in locating meetings and getting people in contact with each other. There's wonderful download sites, uh, yours included, that have a, have, have a wonderful message, and, and it can be an incredible support tool. I think people that uh, want to utilize it as a sole resource uh, I think that's that's kind of a dangerous trend. Yep. Uh, but um, but I, you know I think the inter I think the internet is great. There, there's a, I've never participated in uh, in any online meetings or anything. You know that's not what I've done. But uh, but um, you know there are people that do that, and uh, I think I think whatever helps helps. Uh, I I never want to be closed minded as far as as, as what works, but. The good can sometimes be the enemy of the best, and uh, and sometimes it's a good idea to be on an online meeting, and it's a best idea to be at one. You know, that's right. So, uh, so uh, I think it's important to always be uh, be cognizant of that. By the end of 1939, it was estimated that 800 alcoholics were on their way to recovery. In the spring of 1940, John D. Rockefeller Jr. gave a dinner for many of his friends, to which he invited AA members to tell their stories. News of this got out uh, on the world wires, inquiries poured in again, and many alcoholics went to the bookstores to get the book Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, they went to Rockefeller looking for big money. I mean, the Rockefeller Foundation was in full swing in 1939. It was giving away a lot of money. And they thought that they could get a lot of the John D. Rockefeller money and really push this AA thing forward. And what happened was uh, they, the, the, the foundation folk recognized that this is, this, is an, this is an avocation. This is one alcoholic working with another. This money would ruin this. And and so there was a lot of dejected uh, alcoholics walking out of that meeting. And, you know, they'd gotten maybe five grand, where they could have gotten fifty million. Uh, but uh, that was a one very very smart move uh, from the Rockefeller Foundation. Also, another thing uh, that's very interesting is Alcoholics Anonymous is the only organization ever to pay back to the Rockefeller Foundation the money that was given to it. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? It's the only only uh, organization anywhere. We paid them back because we, you know, uh, the, uh, the the AA people had recognized the fact that you know we uh, they didn't want to uh, 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 to uh, to be beholden to any outside enterprise. They wanted to be self supporting. Yeah, that that says an awful lot. That says a lot. It, it does. It really does, and it, it's it's staggering. Uh, again, a lot of donation checks go into. Uh, uh, to Riverside Drive in New York City to AA World Services, uh, people that are, are grateful that their husbands lived an extra 40 years because of AA, you know, will we'll give a, an honorarium or something, and they're all returned. Mm -hmm. They're all returned. That's excellent. By March 1941, the membership had shot up to 2,000. Then Jack Alexander wrote a feature article in the Saturday Evening Post and placed such a compelling picture of AA before the general public that alcoholics in need of help really deluged to us. 
By the close of 1941, AA numbered 8,000. That's a growth of, you know, several thousand percent in a year. You know they were busy about the business of helping during that period of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The mushrooming process was in full swing. AA had become a national institution. Our society then entered a fearsome and exciting adolescent period. The test that it faced was this. Could these large numbers of erratic alcoholics successfully meet and work together? Would there be quarrels over membership, leadership, and money? Would there be strivings for power and prestige? Would there be schisms which would split AA apart? Soon AA was beset by these very problems on every side and in every group. But out of the frightening and at first disrupting experience, the conviction grew that AAs had to hang together or die separately. We had to unify our fellowship or pass off the scene. Now, Bill Wilson was quietly uh, uh, designing the 12, uh, uh, um, uh, the 12 traditions and some of the 12 concepts for world service during this period of time. He was hammering out the ideas in his head. And, and through a lot of figuring out what didn't work, he was able to put together what did work, what made successful groups, what were the attributes, what were the qualities of the, the successful groups. And he was able to put all those together. And let's say you were a new group uh, in Cincinnati, and you'd, you'd, write, you'd write a letter into AA saying, you know, we're doing this and we're doing that, and this guy's doing this and this guy's doing that. What would happen is a letter would go back to your group saying, we've found through our experience that this seems to work. And if groups were to listen to that experience, they had a much greater success rate than if they went off and did their own thing. There's always egomaniacs. There's always people uh, who are looking to be the number one. I mean, you know, alcoholism is, is, uh, is beset uh, by pe- all these people who want to be number one. And that happened a lot. And, and AA groups became AA group and bingo. You know, AA group and bowling, and, and they did all these crazy things. And uh, 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 a lot of them had gambling meetings after the meeting, and they did all kinds of things. And what what happened was it ended up being like a self-cleaning oven. Uh, <laughs> the bad burned off. <laughs> and and through that experience, they, they kept track. You know, they were paying attention in New York, and they were dis, uh, uh, disseminating their uh, ideas of what uh, the successful groups did. And so, again, uh, the groups that paid attention uh, really, really helped. As we discovered the principles by which the individual alcoholic could live, so we had to evolve principles by which the AA groups and AA as a whole could survive and function effectively. It was thought that, it was thought that no alcoholic man or woman could be excluded from our society, uh, that our leaders might serve but never govern, that each group was to be autonomous and there was to be no professional class of therapy. There were to be no fees or dues. Our expenses were to be met by our own voluntary contributions. There was to be the least possible organization, even in our service centers. Our public relations were to be based upon attraction rather than promotion. We were talking about that earlier. It was decided that all members ought to be anonymous at the level of press, radio, TV, and films, and in no circumstances should we give endorsements, make alliances, or enter public controversies. This was the substance of AA's 12 traditions, which are stated in full on page 561 of the fourth edition. Though none of these principles had the forces of rules or laws, they had become so widely accepted by 1950 that they were confirmed by our first international conference held in Cleveland. That's another kind of stretch of the truth. They were not widely accepted by 1950. As a matter of fact, Bill Wilson had to drive all over the country and lobby like crazy for these traditions. Most groups did not want to be told what to do. Right. I'm not even convinced that Dr. Bob really wanted the traditions. But I am convinced that Bill Wilson, being very far-seeing, really felt the absolute necessity of these traditions. And because of his reputation, was able to talk a lot of the groups and a lot of the group members and service committee members into voting for them. And they were passed unanimously. Uh, but that does not mean they had unanimous support throughout the meetings. They mm-hmm. really did not. Mm-hmm. Today, the remarkable unity of AA is one of the greatest assets, assets that our society has. 
While the internal difficulties of our adolescent period were being ironed out, public acceptance of AA grew by leaps and bounds. For this, there were two principal reasons, the large number of recoveries and reunited homes. These made their impressions everywhere of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried. 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. That's a 75% recovery rate. Mm. You know, what, what, is, what, what is the the normal home group have now? I mean, you can figure <laughs> it out, uh, can figure it out by... Uh, like coin sales, like how many 90-day coins are sold and how many 20-year coins are sold. There's usually a huge difference. Big, big, you know, big so, difference, uh, yeah. Th- there's many reasons for that. However, we can't be, you know, um, uh, I, we can't say that, that the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is that successful at this point in time. Right. Yeah, we can't. Other thousands uh, came to a few AA meetings and at first decided they didn't want the program, but great numbers of these, about two out of three, began to return as time passed. Another reason for the wide acceptance of AA was the, uh, was the advice of friends, friends in medicine, religion, and press, together with innumerable others who became our able and persistent advocates. Without such support, AA could have made only the slowest progress. Some of the recommendations of AA's early medical and religious friends will be found further on in this book. Alcoholics Anonymous is not a religious organization, neither does AA take any particular medical point of view, though we cooperate widely with the men of medicine as well as the men of religion. Alcohol being no respecter of persons, we are an accurate cross-section of America and in distant lands. (laughs) The same democratic evening up process is now going on. By personal religious affiliation, we include Catholics, Protestants, Jews, Hindus, and a sprinkling of Muslims and Buddhists. More than 15% of us are women. Right now, I think it's 48%. Well, it wasn't back, going back, though, far enough, uh, you couldn't say that about women, right? There was no women in AA. Well, you know, even in, in the very, very early days, Bill and Bob were not too keen on having having women in, in the rooms. You know, I've listened to many, many uh, tapes of uh, the early, uh, the first 100, whatever I could get a hold of. And there's a story of Florence Rankin, who, who basically was uh, AA woman number one, who literally had to punch the bouncer to get into the meeting. The bouncer wasn't <laughs> let her in. And she literally had to hit the guy as hard as she could. And the guy said, well, if you want in that bed, I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> and she, she ended up relapsing, but you know, um, women everywhere can uh, who are in the AA can can thank her for that for that uh, for <laughs> for that haymaker. Um, Bill and Bob's early position, which you won't find in any of the conference or approved literature, were were women were trouble in AA. You know? Uh huh. And you know, it was through some. It was through the uh, the, the the persistent. Uh, um, you know, the persistent trials and efforts of some of the first uh, early women, especially Marty Mann, who convinced them that this was for everyone. And, you know, it was the flying blind period. It was, it was you know, they were all uh, on a learning curve. And, and today we can understand alcoholism to be uh, ir- not non-respective of gender. Right. Uh, but back in the day, they just didn't see alcoholism manifesting in women uh, the way it did in men. And, you know, uh, um, we live in different times. We live in different times. Sure. Um, at present, our membership is pyramiding at the rate of about 20% a year. So far, upon the total problem of several million actual and potential alcoholics in the world, we have made only a scratch. If you, if you figure 10% of the world population is alcoholic and there's 9 billion people, I can't do the math on that, but that's an all, that, that's close to a billion alcoholics, Monty. I, I would say you could easily <laughs> say there's there's 250 million, you know, 500 million, uh, without without being too far off off the track. And there's four million members, uh, you know, in in North America. Uh, I'm not sure about the international statistics, but we've got a way to go. There's a lot of twelve step uh, work work to do for uh, Alcoholics Anonymous members uh, out there. Mm, boy, there, there, there certainly is. That's, a, that's an enormous amount. In all probability, we shall never be able to touch more than a far, fair fraction of the alcoholic problem and all of its ramifications. 
Upon therapy for the alcoholic himself, we sure have we surely have no monopoly. Yet it is our great hope that uh, all those who have as yet found no answer may begin to find one in the pages of this book, and will presently join us on the high road to a new freedom. So that's the second edition. That's the forward to the second edition, Monty. Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. I just uh, and it's really not. It's not just stuff. It's it's spiritual substance and uh like like uh, my friend said it is coming alive uh going through the the cover uh listeners we've done, we've done the dust jacket we've done the the preface and the forward to the first edition now the forward to the second edition thank you chris i know you got stuff coming up you have a great rest of the day monty thank you so much this is a great opportunity and i, I always have a lot of fun with you all right my brother thank you so much uh friends don't forget next week Please, as once again, we walk through the big book. Thank you so much. This has been a broadcast of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting. <laughs>